You're listening to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, defining happiness and success, all the big questions for work and life. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And in this episode, I'm talking to the CEO of Flow, former employee of Jack Dorsey and Steve Jobs, Daniel Scrivener. So before we get into the show, just want to talk to you quickly about my Six Weeks to Ninja program, which starts in November. Still some tickets left. So if you go to grahamalcott.com, you can find out details there. Um, or just go to Eventbrite and type in Six Weeks to Ninja. It's an evening course, Thursday evenings UK time. So good for those of you in the US as well listening to this. And the idea is that we will spend six weeks going through all the main parts of my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. So essentially all the main habits that you need to develop really good productivity practices. So if that sounds of interest, then just go to graymalcott.com. You can find out more at graymalcott.com. You can also find out more if you just go to Eventbrite and type into the search bar six weeks to ninja. You should be able to find me pretty easily from there. Um, it's deliberately quite a small group. And the idea is that we're going to really create community around this. My, I guess my experience over the years is there's, there's an awful lot of people who have read How to Be a Productivity Ninja and probably read other, you know, similar um, books around self-help, productivity, time management, all that kind of stuff. And then just not implemented things. There's, all, there's also a load of books on my shelf that I'm looking at right now that I've read that I haven't necessarily, um, you know, then implemented all the stuff in it. So there's always a gap between what you've read and then what you're actually doing and taking action on. So the idea of this six-week program is that we'll create some community around this, create some accountability around this and actually bridge that gap. So get you to implement all the stuff that's in there and, you know, ultimately really turn you into a productivity ninja, someone who's able to do um, a lot of great work, do your best work and actually lower your stress levels at the same time. So if that sounds of interest, it's called Six Weeks to Ninja. It's at grahamalcott.com or it's on Eventbrite. And I would love to have you with me for that course. Um, by the way, if you want a little code for that, I put this code out on my mailing list the code is REVUP because my mailing list is called REVUP for the week. So if you want in on that, if you want a 10% discount, because I'm feeling nice today, um, just go put in REVUP, R-E-V-U-P at checkout and you get 10% off. Um, I'd love to have you there. So check that out. Um, also, before we get into the episode, I have to give a shout out to my beloved Aston Villa. I don't quite know what's going on. We're all keeping our feet on the ground, but four wins out of four in the Premier League. Uh, we go top of the Premier League if we win our game in hand. It's kind of crazy having um, survived by the skin of our teeth last year, but uh, I'm absolutely loving it. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. To be fair, I'm having more people ask me to gloat about it than I'm actually gloating. And I think um, the reason behind that, someone was asking me today, oh, you must be just ecstatic and everything. And I think this is like a good lesson for life which is uh, don't think you're as good as your wins and don't think you're as bad as your losses. So um, it's a football thing, but it's also a life thing. Uh, what's that quote? Um, is a Al Albert Camus quote, which is all that I know most surely about morality and obligation I owe to football. There you go. Um, let's talk about this week's guest. I think you're going to really love this one. This is Daniel Scrivener. Um, one of, I think, my favourite conversations for a while and one that in true Beyond Busy style got into some pretty deep, uh, deep places as well. We talk about Daniel's mental health. 
we talk about his work ethic we talk about working for Steve Jobs and Jack Dorsey and ringing the bell on the New York Stock Exchange as, as Square uh, floated where he was head of design um, we talk about investing and what it takes to build uh, good startups we talk about being humble just all over the map with just really rich conversation from someone who has been there and done it basically and just had incredible experiences um, as a CEO, as a designer. And of course, we talk about the geekiness of his current um, company, Flow, which is a, a an app which will help you with uh, your to-do list and help you with collaboration and is really trying to be uh, the market leader in terms of doing both those things, so personal productivity app and team collaboration app. So um, check out Flow, it's really good. And um, let's get into this episode. One of my favourites for a while. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Daniel Scrivener. Anyway, I'm here with Daniel Scrivener. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on, Graham. Are you in Colorado right now? Yes, Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado. So that's like where it, it's kind of like a hippie town, right? It it has that reputation. Uh, I would describe it. I mean, it's like a mix of it's a fascinating mix of hippie plus crazy athleticism. So there's a bunch of people here that are triathletes or long distance runners or ultra marathoners or bikers. Um, and then you also have a lot of, you know, just booming companies here. So it's a fascinating mix of athletes, hippies and business people. Which <laughs> you don't find any other place. Nice. And so you're the CEO of Flow. And is that where your HQ is? Are you, are, are you kind of mainly there or as a team, are you kind of all over the world? Yeah, so we're a fully distributed team. Um, so we have uh, teammates all around the world. I'm actually the only person based in the US, which um, and the majority of our team is uh, based in Canada. And our HQ, um, if you were to call it that, would be in Victoria, British Columbia. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you're the CEO and you, you've been there since early 2019, right? Correct. Um, so tell me, first of all, how did, how did you come across Flow as a company and how did you get involved um, with working for them? Yeah, so it's a fascinating backstory. So um, Flow is owned by uh, an amazing company called Tiny Capital. Uh, you can find out more about them at tinycapital.com. It's run by two partners, Andrew Wilkinson and Chris Barling, um, who are both in, in just incredible people, really amazing thinkers. Um, so I've known Andrew for 10 years, and I've been fascinated by what they've um, been doing at Tiny Capital um, and have been following along and, you know, just somewhere in the back of my mind. And, you know, this was kind of, if you were to wind a 2018, uh, somewhere in the back of my mind was definitely I would always wanted to work with them more closely. I always wanted an opportunity to learn from them. Um, and uh, we Andrew happened to come into town for coffee in 2018. Uh, went to coffee with him with no expectation, but just to try to pick his brain about all the things they were doing. And Andrew's a master of this. He just flipped the conversation on me. And you know, about five minutes in, it felt like I was <laughs> I was being interviewed. And it was you know, what are you what are you focused on? What are you excited about? You know, where what are you thinking about doing next? And uh, so long story short, um, had that conversation, continued to talk for the next six months. Um, and through that conversation kind of bubbled up this opportunity to come in and take over as the CEO of Flow. And a couple things just that really interested me about it. Uh, you know, the majority of my career before Flow is 
all early stage venture capital or, you know, larger companies like Apple. Um, and so I felt like as an entrepreneur, I learned a lot about one end of the spectrum, which is how do you take something from zero to one specifically with, with the kind of a venture backed model. And what I wanted to learn is what I consider the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, a bootstrapped company, uh, has taken very little outside capital that's been around for 10 years. Um, and some other stuff that was interesting about flow is, you know, we're in a super crowded market. Um, but I still remember, using the first version of Flow 10, 10 years ago and being astounded by how beautiful it was, how well made it was. And so it felt like an amazing opportunity to take my design background, take some of my product experience, take my desire to um, figure out how to uh, be able to lead companies and teams and, uh, you know, through this challenge, try to improve, improve and put all those skills to use. So Flow as a, as a product is all about helping teams to manage productivity um, so I guess if you haven't heard of Flow, you may have heard of Trello and Asana and and, and products like that. So you'd used it um, like back in the early stages of it. Yeah, back when it was an individual product. And so your main focus at the moment is on uh, teams and being able to see that much bigger picture view in terms of what 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 a team of people are all working on at the same time. Yeah, the so um, that is our immediate focus. You know what what we've been working on for the last eighteen months is basically um, you know taking a giant step back and uh, figuring out what this next version of the product that we wanted to build was. We ended up calling that Flow X, um, and we just uh, shipped that to all of our customers about two weeks ago and had seventy percent of customers opt into it and decide to start using it full time within the f- first twenty four hours, which was an incredible response and felt great. Um, but you know, longer term, I think the problem we're solving is much bigger and much more basic than productivity for teams. And in my mind, you know, we're working on an age old problem, which is you, uh, you have a big goal or dream or aspiration that you want to tackle. You've recruited all these incredible people to work with you on it. And now the rubber meets the road and you have to figure out, um, you know, any, and most entrepreneurs have, have learned this already, but it just hiring incredible people and putting them all in the same room and having some sort of a, you know, shared vision is not enough. There's a lot of blocking and tackling. There's a lot of like, how do you get great at team communication? How do you get great at impeccable agreements when you agree to do something as a team? And so I, I see the problem that we're really working on is how do you get multiple people to work uh, together toward one common goal? And how do we build software to help enable that? Um, and so I think that has a lot of applications, both on the team side as well as on the individual side. But for me, the problem we're tackling is it's it's huge. It'll never go away. Yeah. And if people are listening to this, having read my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, it's worth saying that all the stuff that I talk about in the book is stuff that you can do using Flow, right? So being able to manage projects, being able to look at, you know, your at tasks based on your attention level, being able to look at stuff based on location and where you are. So all that stuff that's really core um, productivity ninja content and part of the, the core productivity model is all in there within Flow um, to be able to use. So yeah, it's all there. And we were just talking before we hit record about trying to solve this thing where let's say I'm in a team and the team that I join has Slack or they have Asana or one of those kind of products. And then I have my own, you know, to-do list manager that I'm, that I'm using personally to keep track of my own stuff. Where is that interplay? And it kind of feels like no one's really solved that problem, right? So that, you know, if you're joining a team, then you can switch all your task management stuff into that team software. It kind of feels like 
some of those apps just work much better for teams and some of them work much better for individuals. And there's nothing that really seems to be able to bridge that gap and do both together at the same time. I think that's totally right. I also think that's um, uh, that's a commonality in a lot of other places in the world right now. So, you know, we're, we've been in this period where there's just been a huge explosion of apps. There's more apps than ever to store files, to keep documents, to have an internal wiki, to, you know, for note tools, for productivity tools. And I think that, you know, the next phase of innovation we're going to see is not just this continued explosion of tools, because I don't think that leads anywhere that anybody wants. I don't think any of us want to juggle more passwords passwords, have more tools, have more subscriptions we have to bounce between. So I really think going forward, it's going to be how do you knit these things together in a way that recognizes that, you know, I'm not Daniel, an individual and separately Daniel, you know, a a worker at, at X company. I, you know, have a, a, this all of this stuff to manage. I've got my personal life, my family life, my work life. And so how can we start to have tools that knit all those things together really well so that the the software does some of that work for you? And so it's not, you know, just kind of continued mental overload. So you're working on that problem and how to bridge this gap and, and, and bring it all together. Um, why, why do you think no one solved it? I, I it's, a, it's a good question. I think part of it is... Um, I think part of it is just people really wanting to niche in on specific things. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think um, generally people have a pretty strong, well, I say, would say generally team productivity software people think is really boring. Although I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's super high leverage work. I think it's super important work. I think the idea that, um, you know, so much of what working together in a team is, is having these kind of shared principles, these shared ways of working, which ends up, you know, the shared kind of values, all of that stuff ultimately is just the glue that helps bind you together as a team and prevents you from tripping over each other and allows you to work together in one direction. And I think that problems like that software solves really, really well. Um, but, you know, we haven't had a ton of focus on that. You know, just in the last five years, you know, with Asana and Monday, um, have you started to see a lot of capital and a lot of focus come into that space? I think that is now off on its own trajectory. Separately, you've got individual task management, which I still think is, you know, um, incredibly basic for the most part. Like I, I'm still amazed that most apps don't have notes. Most apps don't have file attachments. <laughs> you know, they have kind of basic tagging support and all of this stuff might sound really boring, but I think it's all these, um, yeah, I think it's starting to become table stakes. And so what, yeah, what we're driving towards is how do we work on both ends of that spectrum and solve what I call full spectrum productivity, which is, you know, I think as a company, you're really, a, um, you know, what you're building is a machine that's incredible at solving problems. And, and uh, in my mind, I think there's very, very different lessons, very different things you learn solving each of those problems for individuals. It's how do you keep it manageable? How do you um, kind of scope down all the functionality, but keep it so it's got the powerful things like notes and tagging and, and file attachments and due times and being able to see your tasks on a calendar and, and all of those things. And then I think on the team side, you solve a very different problem, which is how do you take all these individuals and help them work together. So I think you, you know, if you can work on both of those at the same time, you'll inevitably be learning things that uh, from each side that will help you make a better product for, for both types of users. And so that to me is the ultimate goal. And I think it's a big goal, but that's the one we've, we've been driving towards and uh, I'm, I'm super passionate about. When you, as I said to you before we recorded, when you solve that, I'm going to be your biggest advocate and fan right here in the UK. So, cause it, cause the software looks beautiful as well. So the, the idea of not only being able to use something beautiful, but being able to use that with the team and individually, like, yeah, 
That's, that's, that's the goal. Absolutely. You don't have to give up anything. You can have a beautiful <laughs> workplace, powerful features, simple and easy to use, and be able to use it for teams and, and individuals. And so in my mind, it's a very achievable problem. It's just we've got to, you know, get there in a few different leaps. Nice. Um, and on your bio, it says that when you came into Flow in 2019, it was to help turn around the company. So what did you find when you arrived and what was the job there in terms of that turnaround? Yeah, so that was the the business objective um, that I was, yeah, I, I felt like it would be an incredible challenge and I would learn a ton out of solving it was, um, you know, so so to rewind the clocks a little bit, you know, Flow launched initially, it got spun out of MetaLab, which is one of the world's best product design studios. So right from the very beginning, it had this deeply ingrained culture of making making a tool that's not just powerful, but that's beautiful and that's simple and easy to, to grasp onto. But it started out as a, you know, task manager for individuals and you could manage your own tasks and you could share them with a friend or, or share them with someone you were working on. But it was much more of an individual um, product than it was anything for teams. Over the last 10 years, it's transitioned to be almost entirely focused on teams, you know, but like I said, I think before we pressed record, today we have about 5% of our users as individuals that are just kind of using this bizarro team product because <laughs> it's got powerful features using it individually. And so we already still, we see use, usage of flow on both ends of that spectrum. Um, but a lot has changed over the last 10 years and the competition in the industry has dramatically changed um, over the last five years in particular, where we've seen over a hundred million dollars go into companies like Asana and Monday.com and some of the other players in the space. And so I guess what, you know, uh, the reality that I inherited was a business that was contracting and um, what that, you know, and for any entrepreneur, that's your worst nightmare because it means that every single month you've got less revenue, you've got less customers. Um, but to me, you know, so I knew that that was the reality. But what I saw from the outside looking in is that um, I didn't see any reason if I kind of peered beneath the hood that we wouldn't be able to turn things around. And what I meant by that is I, I it felt like we had all the right features. They could just be simplified, refined, and, you know, kind of uh, presented to our customers in a, in a much easier to grasp onto way. It felt like we had all the big high level functionality. It felt like we had an, in, uh, you know, a defensible position and being a beautifully designed tool. That was something when I came in that can, you know, has continued to kind of just amaze me is when we do a net promoter score poll of our customers, that all of the customers that rate us 10 out of 10, the reason that they use, that they use flow, that they love flow is, you know, they will call us things like the apple of the productivity space. And what's, you know, so an insight for me, I think early on was just that, um, you know, if I think for us, if we can be powerful yet powerful enough that people don't outgrow our product, simple enough that new users, new customers can learn it in just a handful of minutes mm. and focus on being a beautiful tool. And the recognition there is, you know, I think, again, we've been in this software proliferation, uh, this this explosion that's happened. And um, I think, you know, as I said, I think a lot of people view team productivity as an unsexy problem. And so that means that they just kind of don't, I don't think they put in enough effort <laughs> on what the solution looks like. But to me, what that's akin to is, you know, it's like, um, it's like going into an office and you've got, you know, terrible gray rugs and you've got cubicles and you've got, you know, fluorescent light. And it's just a, you know, it's a space that you hate being in or going into something like a WeWork office where everything's beautifully appointed, you know, 
it's a wonderful place to be. I think that, you know, pro- the products we build can have some of those same characteristics. And to me, I think that with anytime there's an explosion of tools that that's, you know, for, on the one hand, that means everybody has more options. On the other hand, it means that everything kind of blends together. And so you really need to focus on differentiation. And so for me, just some of those core principles of what we'll build and why combined with making sure that we always execute that in a beautiful way that felt really defensible. And so, you know, long story short, um, that was the reality that I inherited. It ended up, it's been brutally challenging, you know, to be super honest over the last 18 months. I don't think I appreciated enough how difficult uh, situation that was to take on. But the good news is that we've turned that around and we're back to growth. Um, you know, we have a version of the product now that's performing really, really well for customers. As I said, we had 70% of our customers switch over to use FlowX in the first 24 hours. Um, and so we've, uh, you know, I've kind of referred to it with a few people on the team as it's almost like playing a board game. And, you know, we had to just figure out how to get to the next position on the board. And it, yeah. unfortunately, you know, well, I wouldn't say unfortunately, for better or for worse, it took us 18 months to figure that out, but we have figured it out. And so now we're, you know, we've advanced a, you know, a, a piece on the board and now we get to think about where we go from here. And so that's what we're, we're focused on at the moment. Nice. Um, I'd love to come back and talk more about some of the brutal challenges if that's sure. right, a bit later. Sure. I'm happy um, to. One of the things that's really obvious, just hearing you speak about it and you mentioned there being the apple of the productivity space, you talked about, you know, beautiful user interfaces, beautiful design. So your background is in design and, Correct. you know, you have this thing on your website where you talk about being a designer CEO. So that's not something that you hear as a, as a phrase a lot, the designer CEO. So no. um, just tell me more about why you think having a design approach to the CEO role can be really helpful. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would say that as a blanket statement and cause I've talked to a few people and they've kind of asked me the question of like, Oh, do you think that, you know, designers should be CEOs? And I, you know, for me, it was much more, that was just what all from literally from the time I was in high school, I, uh, you know, and I think I was partly inspired by my family members, but I had an uncle who was an entrepreneur um, and had his own business. And I remember growing up just thinking that was the coolest thing in the world. And I don't, you know, I still don't really, know why, but I've just always been gravitated towards, you know, kind of being in control of your own destiny, being able to shape the things that you do and the values you express out to the world, being in charge of kind of holding a bar on product quality. And it just felt to me like all those things felt kind of like what I've been called to do and what's really excited and attracted me. And so those things just happened to kind of mean that, um, you know, I had a background in design, which is for me is always the, the way I kind of, I, I mean, I'm happy to share the story, but I, you know, frankly kind of stumbled into design. I just happened to do it early on in my, in my life. And I stumbled into this thing that I love. And for me, what design has always been is it's this wonderful, amazing, ever fascinating intersection of solving really difficult problems. Sometimes those are business problems, like how do you increase sales? How do you get more people to sign up on your homepage? Some of the, sometimes those are product problems, like how do we execute this feature or what's tripping people up about the way this is executed right now? Sometimes it's branding problems, but it's always solving a really difficult problem combined with trying to pull that off in a way that there's some sort of an artful twist. And you ideally create something that's singular, that feels, you know, both very uh, familiar, but very new and interesting. And to me, that's always felt like, oh man, if you can, it's, and it's, it's not like I've got, you know, the magic formula from, from my career so far, but I definitely have some approaches that I know work to try to find those solutions. And so that's my love of design. 
And, uh, and so I've just, you know, my, the natural path for me was at some point to figure out how I made that leap to being, uh, being a CEO, being an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, flow was an amazing opportunity to both like bring those design skills and that design background, um, get a chance to really learn what it is to be, (laughs) to be in the CEO role and to be leading a team. Um, and, uh, it's, it's been fascinating experience. Let's just um, reassure everyone, though, like even though you're a a designer CEO, you're still allowed to have scrappy bits of paper and really bad Google Docs and tables and things like that, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, my backpack's full of like scribbled (laughs) sheets of paper and notes. And yes, absolutely. (laughs) But part of your design background is background is that you worked at Apple. Yes. So I'd love to just delve into that and just talk about um, what you learned there. Presumably that's if you're going to be a designer, then that's like the dream place to be, isn't it? Yes. I mean, so I still think of that as my boot camp. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, so I, um, I stumbled into design, uh, when I was in high school, I, I am, as soon as I kind of stumbled into it and learned what it was, I, that like I had found, I'd found the thing. And so I was just ever fascinated by that. I was always learning about it. I was, I wanted to get as good at it and improve my skills at it as quickly as I could. So I just started, you know, just trying to do design as much as possible. So what that meant was I started taking on, you know, projects for free before anybody would pay me. Once I built up a portfolio, I finally was able to get paying clients, you know, and so I literally started at the bottom, the very, very bottom of the totem pole, meaning a freelancer with no real clients, no one knowing your name and trying to just kind of work up the ladder of getting better and better and better work. Are these projects software design? Are they graphic design? Like what kind of design are you doing? Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a mix. I mean, early on, I did a lot more marketing and branding stuff than I did product stuff. Um, I started really leaning more into product work when I was at Apple. Um, but to me, it's always like, it's a spectrum and there, you know, you need to, you, you need to know there's different ways to approach different problems. You kind of, you need to have different mental models, uh, inherently salt, like coming up with a, or doing a wonderful, you know, rebranding or coming up with the branding for a company that really works is a very different problem than trying to make a marketing site. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of commonalities that, that kind of knit, knit all of them together. So over the course of my career, I've kind of done it all, but I've, you typically specialized in one thing at a given um, moment in time. But kind of the quick backstory is I never graduated college. So when I I, uh, was two years into college and felt like I had this fork in the road moment where I could either continue to do design full-time, which is what I really felt gravitated towards just because I love doing it. And to Mm. me, it was this trade-off of like, I can either spend all my time (laughs) doing this thing I love and getting better at it, or I can go to, you know, school for two years and really dedicate myself to that and kind of push off this thing that I love. So I ultimately chose to stop school for six months and uh, give it a try to try going. And I quit my job at the same time and decided I would just go all in on design. And that ended up being for me, the leap that I needed to kind of start a new trajectory in in my career. And so, you know, if you fast forward, I think, I don't know, four or five years, I ended up, um, getting an email, getting offered an interview to come and and join Apple's uh, marketing communications team. And uh, initially, I wasn't sure what that was going to look like. I ended up being there for three and a half years. Um, And, you know, the experience to date is probably one of the best of my career still. Like the people Mm -hmm. that were there are were absolutely brilliant. Um, And the thing that I took away from it the most is 
um, you know, so what, when, what, when would this have been? This would have been, I don't know, 2008, something like that. This was right around the release of the, of the iPad. And, um, you know, design at that point in time wasn't as esteemed as it is today. And so, you know, joining a place, so there wasn't as many opportunities joining a company like Apple was, I think the best thing I could have done at that moment in time, because I, um, I, I, the, the, the thing I took away from it at the end of the day is what I call, you know, repeatably excellent design, which is how, what's, what does the process look like? What are the conditions that you need? How do you set a team up for success to not just solve one problem well every once in a while? Because design, to be super honest, just like investing or gambling or business or anything else, there is a lot of luck and serendipity involved. And so plenty of people can stumble upon a great solution and have a wonderful looking, wonderful feeling thing every once in a while. But I think it's very different if you try to create a system for doing that time and time and time again, knowing that what's going to come out the other end is always meets this certain bar. And that's that's really what I learned at Apple, I think, at the end of the day. Um, did you work with Steve Jobs? I, I was never in a meeting with him directly. I saw him around campus. I got to be, you know, some of the most exciting things that, that when I was there were things like company all hands where everybody got to ask questions and Steve was the one fielding answers. And mm. just to see, you know, because he, uh, there's uh, there's so much, I think, to love about Steve Jobs. He was a very complicated person, but, um, you know, he did not mince words. And, and in yeah. those meetings, you know, um, just like it has happened at every company I've, I've been a part of since, you know, sometimes questions will get asked that, um, I don't that that uh, can show either a lack of understanding or a lack of knowledge. And I remember in one all hands in particular, someone answered a question, and Steve just eviscerated the person in front of the entire company for asking, you know, this particular question. And but that was what it was like at Apple. And I think that you know you can see that as a negative, you can see that as a positive. But what I really appreciated there, and and again, I think this is my experience has been that this is what it takes to create a world class company. Is you have to have an incredibly high bar for everybody on the team for how you interact for how you communicate and that and, and the way that i talk about that is that means you need positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops because we all need something to kind of keep us headed in the right direction positive feedback loops are like hey guys here's an amazing project here's something we should model let's share this story let's share this work with the entire team and negative feedback loops are things like that where it's like i'm sorry but if you show up to a meeting and you ask a question that feels inconsiderate or ill-considered like we're not going to treat that with a ton of compassion <laughs> and a ton of empathy so I appreciated that, but it was a, you know, it was a unique experience for sure. Was Steve mainly, obviously he was often the purveyor of the negative uh, feedback loops there, but like, was he also bringing in the positive ones too, or was it more about other people having to sort of compensate for his brutal honesty and, you know, ability to destroy someone in front of the whole company kind of thing? Well, so that's what, that was one thing I think is, is fascinating. And I've, I haven't actually thought about it until I was just hearing you kind of frame that up. But, um, you know, Apple wasn't a company where there was a lot of pats on the back. And, but I, well, what that doesn't mean, and I want to be super explicit about that, is that, uh, you know, people weren't, uh, in love with what they were, were doing. Like at all points in time, none of us, all of us on the team loved what we were working on. And we treated it with, you know, if it was something like coming up with a new icon for iTunes, which is one of the projects we worked on or coming up with the smart signs that happen, that made their way into the retail store or redesigning the Apple store app for iPad. Um, you know, all those were things that we worked on and, and, um, you know, some of those are glamorous problems, exciting problems to solve some of them a little less so, but we all approached it like we were, I don't know, like 
scientists trying to solve a problem, come up with a cure for something. And, you know, the joy was in the work. The joy was with all of your teammates. We were constantly just having, you know, fun together. And we just loved getting the chance to come and work with each other. So it wasn't like you needed a tons of, you know, no one needed reassurance. We didn't need a lot of pats on the back. I think what we, what Apple used um, as kind of the positive feedback loop is, more just sharing examples of things they were really excited of and proud of. And I think that's one of the most powerful things you can do as a CEO or a team leader is not tell your team, here's what I don't want, here's what I do want. Don't, you know, because that's inevitably this kind of roundabout way of, of saying, here's what we're going after. What's a much better way to do that is just really celebrate and really call out the things on the team that happen to be exactly, you know, like this is exactly the way we should solve problems. We're going to celebrate this moment. We're going to talk about this in front of the whole team. We're going to allow this person to walk us through the process behind it. And by doing that, if you do that consistently and reliably, you know, it's this kind of like you're constantly reinforcing the behavior that you want in the team in, in a really positive way. And I guess sometimes as a leader, it's it feels easier or the mind jumps more easily to the idea of dictating yeah and sometimes that facilitation of kind of peer-to-peer sharing and you know sharing those good practice examples sharing good design examples and stuff what you really need to do as a leader is facilitate right and and that kind of peer-to-peer information sharing is is often more powerful than always being the one setting the rules setting the agenda Yes. And, you know, one, it might be somewhat related. I'll just try to tie it in because it's kind of interesting that you just said that. But this was something I was just, uh, you know, writing down and sharing with the team yesterday. Is there's a book that I really have been enjoying called One From Many. It's written by D. Hawk, who was the founder of Visa mm. and the CEO of Visa for a really long time. Um, but the, the uh, there's three pages in the book. It's from page 48 to page 50 that um, I've underlined a ton. And to me is the best encapsulation of what world-class leadership looks like and it's totally flipped on its head you know and so it starts out with you know if you try to think about what the first priority of any manager or any leader is you know everyone's first instinct is oh it's all about you need to manage down you need to tell your team what to do you need to be setting priorities for the team and what i love about that book because i think it's the right way to do it because a lot of things in life at least what i've learned is the best ways to do things are all often counterintuitive or it's a it's kind of you're focusing more on second and third order consequences and first order consequences but the, the basic idea is all leaders first and foremost have to manage themselves well you need to show up as the best version of yourself every single day you need to be an example for the team that means that if you're going to be late to a meeting let the team know you're going to be late. If you said you were going to get something done and you're not, you need to hold an impeccable agreement. So you need to either update the team or get it done. But it all starts there. Then the next thing you need to do is manage up. Um, because, you know, if you can't manage up well, then you're not, then you and your team aren't going to be free to be able to execute and implement the things that you need. And, you know, another way of thinking about that, a term I really like that has, um, been bubbling up a little bit lately is this concept of a trust battery, you know, and I think all leaders and managers, you've got a trust battery that you need to charge up not only with your team, not only with your peers, but also up, you know, you need to manage up and when you manage up well, what you're doing is you're really charging up that trust battery so that you can go and execute and move around and make decisions with a lot of autonomy because you've got that buy-in. Then the next thing is still not managing down. (laughs) The next thing is then you need to manage your peers. You need to be a really great cross team leader. You need to connect the 
dots between people on your team. And then at the, the very last thing you need to worry about is managing down. And what I love is when he kind of gets to that point, he says, you know, and you might be a little bit confused because now it doesn't seem like there's much time to manage down. He's like, that's the whole, that's the whole point. Because if you hire competent people and you get the rest right, you don't need to manage down. Nice. And I love to me just that whole idea. I'm like, wow. That, and that was, that is the, the dot to connect there is not only is I think that the right framework for how leaders should think about their role, how managers should think about their role, but it's also how we operated at, at Apple where, you know, it was, it was, it was certainly hierarchical and there was a lot of respect for the leaders that were on the team. Um, but at the end of the day, it was very much that model. First show up as, as an excellent person, do a really good job of partnering with the people above you and alongside you and, uh, you know, focus on the work. Yeah. And we'll, we'll put the link to that book in the show notes as well. Um, one from many, and I just think that's such a, such a simple, but very powerful model. I really like that. Um, it reminds me also of, um, I bet as, as, as an American, you, you may not have heard of Sven Goran, Goran Eriksson. Do you know who that is? No. <laughs> so he was probably about, probably actually around about the same time as you were at Apple, uh, 2008 sort of time. He was the manager of the England football team. And, um, the culture that he inherited there was, uh, very much, you know, a lot of players that were paid big money and didn't necessarily respect playing for England that much. And, uh, were often, you know, going for beers the night before games and all that sort of thing. And he used to talk a lot about the concept of cultural architects, which I think is a really fascinating thing in, you know, in thinking about business culture. And basically what he identified quite early on was that David Beckham, who at that point was quite a young player. This might be further back than 2008, but anyway, um, he identified that David Beckham was not necessarily going to be the most vocal person on the pitch, but he was going to always be the one who set the example. And so he made Beckham captain. And really that that kind of flipping that switch really changed the the dynamic within the England dressing room because suddenly everyone was like, right, we need to look up to how David Beckham is is carrying himself and how he prepares for games and all that kind of stuff. And you know, just kind of recognizing how important that was, you know, really helped um, the team dynamic. So just always love that, that idea of cultural architects, you know? Yeah, it's fascinating. And just, the, just to add one bit on, I mean, what I love about, um, yeah, those pages 48 through 50 in Dehawk's book is he talks about that, you know, typically people think you need to command, demand, you know, kind of uh, how people should perform. And he says, actually, the, the best way to do it is to induce ad- it. And so you just want to have somebody that can model it. You want to have an environment where you have a bunch of people that are all following those principles of leading themselves well, managing up well, managing, you know, uh, across to peers really well. And if you do that, then you don't ever need to ask or demand because it's either like, here's the bar, everybody's at that bar. So you're either below it and you're going to get up to it, or you likely need to leave the company, you know? And I think that again is well, where I think sometimes people can look at that and think it's, you know, I don't know, not compassionate, dispassionate, something like that. Um, but to me, I'm like, no, I think that's just, if you want to have a team with world-class performers, they inherently want to be around other world-class performers. That means you need to have a high bar. That means it is very much a, like everybody is showing up as their best self-challenging each other type of an environment. And I think you either love that or you hate that. But I, I think that that is certainly a recipe for success, depending on what you're going after. Yeah. And I think you can also do that in, in really compassionate ways too, right? That doesn't have to be a sort of cutthroat environment that can actually be done in in really exciting and, and sort of inclusive ways too, right? Yes. Um, let's talk about other stuff that you've worked on. So you're also the founder and managing partner of Black Letter, 
Um, so yeah, just tell us what that is, first of all. Yeah. So, um, about five years ago after I left Square, um, you know, I, uh, I had been, I was at Square for a little bit over five and a half years. I joined the team when it was less than 50. Um, I think by the time I left, it was somewhere between 1500 and 2000 people. Um, you know, we had IPO'd in that time. I got to, um, be a part of the group that went to the New York stock exchange on the day that we IPO'd. So that to me, you know, my experience at square was very much a Goldilocks, um, just kind of this magical, I joined at the right time, happened to be the right company, had a fantastic, you know, experience there, learned a ton. So coming out of that, I, you know, it was a really intense experience. I was super proud and grateful that I had it. But I felt like I needed to, you know, kind of shake off a little bit of dust <laughs> and um, that I wanted to be a little bit more serendipitous. So a little less focused on one thing for a period of time and a little bit more kind of curious and, and open. And so the thought in, in my mind when this started was, um, you know, can I take some of the money that I that I made from being a part of Square and... Um, uh, learn how to how to be an investor. You know, learn how to uh, become an angel investor in companies. And as you know, then I discovered advising work. And so, what Blackletter has become over the last um, I don't even know probably six eight years something like that now is uh, one we've made direct investments in over a hundred companies. Um, the majority of those are in the U.S. Um, we've invested across all stages and companies' life cycle. So we've invested super late um, in what typically is called like a secondary or a growth round, um, but most of our investments are super early. And then I've also worked as an advisor with a handful of companies that felt like they they met the bar for, I could learn with my capital by investing some of my capital, but this is a... Uh, this is a um, you know an incredible team, and I, I feel like I would just love to work with them directly on this problem. Yeah. And so, in my mind, it's you know I'm either investing my time or I'm investing my capital. And the way that I really think about it is, um, you know, I, I went into it not thinking like I'm going to make a ton of money, um, and you know I've done super well on the return side. But I think that's just because at the end of the day, that ends up being a second or third order consequence. And what I was really interested in is. I wanted to learn. And so the, the kind of way I've referred to it, um, with friends is it's almost like being a scientist. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, you know, and you have one company, cool. You're a scientist with one experiment that you're watching, you're seeing how, <laughs> what, how it responds to. But if you can spin up a bunch of those experiments in parallel and you have all these other companies and you can see what they're doing well, how they're going about making decisions, how they really can break through and get to that next level. That to me, it's been, it's been, it's been incredible. It's been an incredible experience. And so, as I said, you know, we have a hundred investments to date. I continue to, um, make, make direct investments in companies. And then another thing that I've done, which I've really enjoyed is, you know, so I said, I've worked as an advisor uh, directly with companies, which has been wonderful, but I've also had the chance to work as an advisor with a handful of venture capital funds. So people like um, designer fund, notation capital, um, combine ventures in San Francisco. And that's been amazing because it's given me a chance to see, uh, you know, I, I know what it's like for me to look at a company and look at a team and decide to invest my personal capital in it or not. And that's very different than being a GP and you've raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars of other people's capital. And, you know, you're looking at very different opportunities. You're looking at things through a very different lens. And so again, for me, it all just comes back to learning. And I've always learned best with skin in the game. So it's been incredible. That's really interesting. So over a hundred investments and then, you know, lots of other companies that you're looking at through that lens as well. Can you think of particular experiences or or particular lessons that you've learned um just in terms of what you think makes a, a successful 
um, startup, a successful early stage company. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, so that's still the like distillation of all that, I, that I've learned is, uh, that's still lies somewhere in the, in the future. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot. I think the thing that stood out to me the most so far is just things that are, that are very, very, very surprising. So an example of that, um, I'll give you two examples. One is uh, notion and one is Figma. So I, uh, I first met, the founders of Figma, this must have been 10 years ago. And it was back when I was, I had just joined Square and um, Jack Dorsey, who was the CEO, I was on the leadership team. So I knew Jack, he connected me with um, the uh, leader of the design team. I forget their title. I think it was head of design, VP of design over at Twitter. And so we connected and and one day he said, you know, why don't you come down with me and let's go down to uh, Palo Alto and I just want you to meet this team that I've been working with. And it was the most humble beginnings of any company. It was literally basically kind of a shell of an office. They had nothing on the walls, no furniture, nothing on the floor. It was just cement and white walls. They had a couple of desks and uh, it was just Dylan and his co-founder that were chugging away. And at that point in time, you know, if you were, I, I don't care who you are, if you were to go and stand in that environment, you would certainly be like, this, this is cool. Like these people are, they seem very smart, very motivated. They're clearly working on something, but even if you squinted your eyes really hard, you would have no idea that that was the beginning of what Figma has become. And so I think what I've learned, and I've seen now multiple of those where, you know, I, I think it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful narrative where people try to say that as an early stage investor, you know, you kind of just predict the future and you can, oh, I just knew that this was going to get there. I'm sorry, but I've, I've seen enough of these now that you never know. Even when I was at Square, I think one of the fascinating experiences were was there was multiple periods of time when I was at Square where I thought to myself and multiple people on the team thought that our equity is never going to be worth anything. Like we're, you know, this company is such a hot mess. Like there's, you know, our processes are all over the place. Like from the outside, from the, you know, from the outside world's perspective, things were amazing and what we were shipping was incredible. But what I've often found is there's a very big disconnect between how you're, how you're perceived externally and how it feels internally. And that's, you know, and I think all I've taken away from that isn't, that's not a bad thing. That's not a, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I think what I've taken away from all those experiences is that's the reality. You know, things are very complex. You never know at any point in time. And so really what that's informed that what that's helped me do. And I'll give an example of something like, like notion. I invested in notion five plus years ago at this point. And, um, when I invested, I had, I, if you were, if anyone was to say, do you think this will ever be a billion dollar company? I would have said, absolutely not. But it's a wonderful tool for individuals. But, it, you know, but again, it's like, so I think what I've, um, and you know, I, that, investment I've done over a hundred X, you know, on that investment, just in notion alone. And, um, I think what I've learned over time is not your goal is never to try to predict the future. Your goal is never to try to have this mystics approach to here's where things are headed. It's very much just to, to look at what's there and what you're really underwriting. Anytime you're making investment early on is the person or, you know, do they, are they, do they have a deep, deep, deep well of motivation? <laughs> Because founding a company, fighting through all the different stages takes a huge amount of willpower and determination and, and motivation. I think another one is, are they aware, you know, can they both hold on to this vision that they have and also balance that against a really deep sense of the reality that they're facing at the given moment? Because again, there's at early stage companies, those things are often, 
massively far apart. You know, like here you're struggling with keeping the thousand customers that you have, but in your mind, you know that you're trying to go after getting a million customers and being at this revenue rate and having these sorts of customers. And, um, and you need to balance both of those. And that inherently is really difficult to do. And then I think the last one is just someone who, uh, you could throw literally any problem in front of them and they will overcome it. And I think being, uh, you know, uh, that was something I saw at Apple. There was no problem on the creative team that anyone would throw up their hands uh, against. No one would say it's impossible. We would, you know, fight tooth and nail to figure it out and figure it out in a great way. I also saw that at Square. We did that at Square all, you know, all the time where, you know, we had really, really, really difficult insurmountable problems. And what I've learned there is just, it's not like it's a magical skill set. All it is is you need to, uh, uh, you know, kind of maintain a sense of centeredness, know where you're headed, don't worry too much about that you're, you know, where you are in terms of where you'd like to be, and just literally treat it like it, you know, again, you're a scientist, you're going through the scientific method, that didn't work, what's the next thing I try? And if you can just stay focused on that and celebrate the little wins and stay motivated and in that fashion, then that can uh, unlock you to achieve really big things. But it's a lot of really hard skills. And so I think what I've learned more than anything is just, um, uh, yeah, I think a new appreciation for how complicated it is, a new appreciation for how much serendipity, um, and luck, you know, play a role in these outcomes. And I, but I think that, you you know, so to backstop that, you're just really looking for characteristics that basically say, can this person continue to fight another day and can they hold on to the gains that they have? And can they continue to kind of set the bar higher and higher for themselves and their team? Nice. Um, it feels like that brings us um, neatly back to you describing the last year or so as being brutally challenging. Just a shout out to Notion as well, because um, I'm staring at my screen where I've done all the research for this podcast and it's all in Notion. <laughs> so I, I love Notion. I'm a big fan. It's and, a wonderful uh, tool. And they've yeah. done they've taken it places I don't think anybody could have imagined. And Yeah, I have to say it's never the easiest one like when I first coach people and they start using it, people really struggle with it. Like early on, it's, it's not an easy, like you were saying with flow, it's like you want people to be able to pick that up within, you know, 20 minutes and be able to use it beautifully. And it's like notion, I think takes a lot longer than that. It's, um, yeah. it's just because of the level of complexity that's in it. Yeah. You're so, very rewarded once you yes, learn it, but absolutely. it's one of the, and I think that's kind of why it works is, you know, you're, there's enough people that have had success with it that you're willing to push through. And once you do push through, um, you know, you're able to create something amazing. That's something I've been amazed by is, you know, I've, um, there's a great blog, um, by Dan Shipper called super organizers. And he's highlighted a few people who have just created like this. I'm like, dear God, that's the most beautiful dashboard I've ever seen for their personal life and family life and work life. And so the things you can do with it are incredible, but yeah, the learning yeah. curve is steep. And, um, also just, we'll put a link in the show notes to my, my pal on the south coast of England, uh, Francesco D'Alessio, who does quite a few videos around Notion and um, how he uses it and does a really good job with that. So we'll put links like in the show notes as well. Um, so uh, let's come back to the resilience thing then, right? So, so it's been a brutally challenging year and a half or so. Um, so just tell me what, um, what that's meant for you personally. What are some of the things that you've been um, you know, really battling over that time. Yeah. So I think, um, so I've thought about this a lot recently because, you know, as I said, we've recently turned this corner and, um, you know, our, our metrics have fundamentally changed. We're back to growth. 
um, we see just really encouraging statistics. But you know what the last and I literally just uh, a week ago, I kind of recapped for the team what the last 18 months has looked like from a business perspective and kind of here's what our revenue has looked like in this time. Um, here's, you know, what our net profit has looked like in this time. Here's what our monthly run rate and our growth has looked like in this time. And, um, you know, I think it's a great encapsulation of what it's felt like, which is, you know, kind of a, a downward curving graph with no end in sight. And, you know, but knowing that we need, we can get to the other end of this, we can figure this out and that we have a lot of things working in our favor. You know, we have tons of customers that love us and appreciate us. We have a lot of really loyal customers. Um, you know, we have a lot of the, we have a huge moat in terms of different um powerful features that we've built that we have that fundamental you know technology there and so we can always execute that in better ways to make it easier to use but you know there's still an, a lot of inherent things that we have working in our favor but you know it's it's been brut- it's been brutally difficult over the last 18 months and really what it i think the way to think about it is it's being in the middle of that disconnect i talked about of you know knowing that you can get to the other side of this and and being really motivated and really inspired by what you can build um, you know, what you can build, what you can offer to customers, you know, this vision of what you're building in your mind, but at the same point in time, having just the worst current reality to deal with and navigate. And I think that's, what's been so difficult about it is it's, it's one thing if you're, I don't know, if you have your venture capital backed company, you have a lot of money in the bank and you're going through a transition period in a company, which for anyone who's never been a part of, you know, kind of a, a venture backed company and can, you know, maybe sees the stories in the news and thinks it's literally just a chart that just goes up and to the right. That is not what it's like <laughs> at all. And there are multiple points in any company's existence where, you know, it's almost like the world or mother nature or something bigger is challenging you and seeing if you're still, you know, if you can still deliver if you're ready to still be and be here and play at this level or if you know and i've thought about it a lot honestly for me it kind of goes back to evolution and i think a lot of what competition feels like in the business world is you need to be fit to compete and what that inevitably means is you know you have to have a really great product you have to be able to offer customers something of value and if you can't then people will leave and so you know i just so you have all these things swirling around in your mind i think for me what it took to push through because it you know it took literally a full 18 months to kind of uh, rebuild the product into a new version of the product that we call FlowX, which is um, available to for early access now and all of our customers have access to it. You know, we introduced new pricing and plans. We rebranded the company. We redid the entire marketing site. We switched over our billing and subscription system. We, you know, worked with countless customers uh, and had a six month um, beta period for FlowX where, you know, it's, and it's, uh, that's one thing I would call out is it's incredibly tricky. I think one thing I didn't appreciate enough is it's one thing to turn around a business. It's another thing to try to keep customers happy and excited about the product you offer while also working on this next, you know, kind of this next evolution version of the product that inherently is going to be different. And you're going to have taken some features away and you're going to be changing some of the way things work. And I think that's been the most challenging. And the only thing that we've done there that I would encourage other people to do that are doing that same challenge of like, you're trying to keep you trying to carry these customers forward with you as you head off in this new direction the best way that we've done that is just be overly communicative and so i think for us where that really started to fall into place is we uh switched to a weekly um cycle where every single week we were sprinting on a handful of new features improvements bug fixes and we were shipping that every week religiously on monday and what that meant from a customer's perspective is you know over time and i think this is the other thing is just it i have a new appreciation for how much time it takes 
takes for some of this stuff to really stick with your team, some of this stuff to really stick with customers. But it's not like you move to a weekly cadence and two weeks in customers are like, sweet, this is great. I have a ton of confidence. It takes three, six, you know, months of, of steady releases for people to really feel like, okay, things are great. Things are moving in a good direction. Every single week you're, you're shipping stuff. If I raise an issue or a bug, I know it's going to get addressed. Um, so just be really overly communicative. And I think, you know, on the personal side, I could talk for like an hour and a half about what it's meant. But I think, you know, I've struggled with depression over the last 18 months for a period of time um, because of how difficult. Well, I think, to be honest, because at the end of the day of how I was approaching it and it was all I was I was approaching it the wrong way. And I'm happy to touch on that in a second. Um, but, you know, I think so much of, of doing that well is just managing yourself mentally and emotionally so that you can, again, the whole process in my mind is like, if you, if you know that if you have this idea of where you can head and you know, you can get there and you can prove that you can put one step in front of the other. And each time you put a step, each time you take a step forward, things are improving. You're, you're moving the needle. I think what I have learned to trust and get a lot more comfortable with is, you know, as long as I know every time we ship this release, we're getting closer and closer to this goal. I know we're not there yet. I know that it still feels frustratingly far away, but I think what you really have to just learn to embrace is, you know, and I had a, I tweeted this recently of just like, I think with the principle I took away from that is anytime you're ever feeling demotivated about your progress towards a goal, just forget about, you know, where you are or your sense of where you are and how far away this goal is and just look instead at, at what you're doing. And, you know, so for instance, like if you're working out, if you are, were able to lift, you know, so say you're squatting and you're able to do five pounds more this week than you were last week, you're, there's compounding taking place. You know, you are getting stronger, you are getting closer to your goal. So forget about, you know, this kind of beating yourself up and the struggle in your mind and this demotivating cycle of I'm still so far away and instead again just embrace the little wins and trust that you know i think uh, i i was thinking about a better way i could have said that is you know the biggest ingredient compounding is time it's not effort it's not uh it's not anything else it literally is patience and time and so what that means is just take those little steps and give yourself the chance to compound um you mentioned depression there i've also had a couple of bouts of depression over the years and funnily enough they also have um, coincided with times where work has felt really hard and it's felt yes. like stuff has not been moving forward. Yes. Um, what changed in your outlook to, to, to sort of, if it sounded like you kind of had, had a breakthrough with how you were approaching your thought process about it. Yeah. So it was, so, I mean, the, yeah, for anyone else that's ever struggled with this, I guess just to open about it, to open up about it for a second. When I was going through, and it was a, it was a long period. I would say it was somewhere between six and nine months, maybe, maybe a year that I was in this kind of depressive period. And for anyone that knows me, it is completely out of my nature. I'm never a depressed or a down person. And so what, you know, what still kind of scares me, to be honest, is, if you were to have asked me any, any, on any day during that span, if I was depressed, I would have said, no, I'm not, I'm not depressed. And it's only, it kind of took one, my wife kind of just raising it and saying like, I don't, you know, something's not, not good. Like you're just not, you're not yourself. You know, it kind of took her honestly raising the flag a little bit for me to begin to notice. But even then it was a pretty long process. And I think only once I had gotten out the other side, did I really have this sense of like, Oh my God, no, I really, I truly was struggling with, with depression. And I think for me, what, um, to try to encapsulate it, it was, it was all the way I was approaching it. And I've been thinking a lot about this, but you know, one is so, you know, if just take a step back really quickly, think about kind of my career 
if it was on a chart, it's all been this, um, you know, kind of upward trajectory. And what I mean by that is my career is I've, I've over the course of my career so far, I've taken on more responsibility. I've taken on more pressure. I've taken on more demands. I've taken on more things. All of those are things, whether consciously or unconsciously I've done, you know? And so what that's meant is over time, it's just like, think of a building, think of a, you know, a beam of metal. You're just loading up more and more and more weight on it. And I think, you know, I was just thinking about it this morning, but one, um, I don't know if I'd recommend the book, although the book has a lot of good ideas in it, but I think honestly, so much of the magic of the books just in the title is, um, what got you here won't get you there. You know, and I felt that, that ring true for me so many times in my career, but you know, I think what happened is up until, uh, I took on this opportunity at flow, I was able to overcome any challenge by just basically brute force outworking it, you know, and just kind of like, it literally was like, I'm not going to try to solve this elegantly. I'm not going to, you know, lean on planning too much. I'm just going to sprint and get after it. And I'll eventually figure this thing out. And lo and behold, and it doesn't take a genius to understand this. That is not the best way that at some point in time, if that's your approach, you will absolutely hit a brick wall and it will be really difficult for you to get through the other side because this thing that has worked for you suddenly no longer is lost all its magic and it's no longer going to work. And I think the recognition there was I had just passed a point where I could take that approach anymore. And so it, the depression period where is where I was just trying to brute force it. I was stressed at work. I, you know, it's not, I want to be really clear. Like I was depressed in that I wasn't taking care of all, all aspects of myself. And I definitely wasn't showing up as my best self to work. And so I was still very motivated, very driven, very excited about what I was working on, but I was, um, absolutely deprioritizing parts of myself, part of my life in order to go kind of all in on, on, on work. And so for me, really the unlock was, um, trying a totally different approach. And it started when I um, came across Ben, Ben Greenfield's podcast and uh, then read his book boundless. I've then read other similar books around kind of holistic um, health and nutrition, kind of ancestral wisdom. And all of this stuff might sound a little hippy dippy, but the basic, you know, the basic idea in all these books is um, we, uh, if you think about where we came from, you know, we're, we, uh, we didn't used to be connected to technology 24 seven. We didn't used to be inundated with all of this demands and information. We didn't used to have multiple jobs. And, you know, some of this is things that we've done to ourselves. Some of this is things that I think has just changed culturally over time and have become normal. But, you know, we're living in a period where just like the demands on us have never been greater. And I think the only way you can deal with that in a way that you truly kind of rise above it as opposed to just brute force banging against it and trying to kind of break through a barrier is by going and working at it at a higher level. And so what that has, has inevitably been meant is I'm no longer brute forcing. I'm no longer just trying to just work more hours in a day, get more, more, more done. I've flipped and gone the total other direction in which I think it was the thing I should have done all along, which is basically focusing in on what's essential, what truly matters, what are the one or two things that I really need to move the needle on. And then, uh, understanding that, uh, perform, you know, as an individual, like I need to approach my performance holistically. That means I need to focus just as much on recovery, on nutrition, on exercise, on getting sunlight, on reading. And I think that that's the unlock is it's almost, I've kind of thought about it a little bit like quantum physics. (laughs) Um, and you know, there's this concept of like a superposition in quantum physics where you can be at this position where all these things are intersecting. And I think that that's really what it takes to, to show up as your best self and really be able to, 
um, you know, live out your hopes and, and dreams is you really do have to, you can't brute force it. You, you have to become the person that, uh, can solve this problem really easily and naturally. And so now it's, you know, I'm do I have a bunch of things that I do every single day to take care of myself. You know, it's not like it's, I'm a hundred percent perfect. You know, we'll always be this kind of continuous struggle to make sure that I'm keeping all these aspects of my life in balance, but it's been a huge shift. That's super inspiring. I mean, that basically is beyond busy right there. <laughs> right? So, thank you <laughs> for sharing true that. It's because you have to take a different approach. You know, yeah. You, yeah. Um, you mentioned connectivity there and I've seen you write previously about the, the attention economy and opting out of the attention economy. Um, how does that manifest it in your own life? I, I mean, so this is, yeah, this would be another thing, I guess I would just add a giant disclaimer that, you know, sample size of one, this is my perspective. It may not, it may work, for, it may resonate with you, may work for you, may not. Um, but it's definitely not the norm. And I think, you know, I, over the last few years, another big realization I've had is, you know, we're all here for a very short period of time at the end of the day. And, um, you know, one of the best books that I try to read at this point, every couple months, um, but at least yearly is, um, something, something like on the briefness of time or something like that. I can, I can find it after this and, and send it to you. But the whole book is basically it just the, what it continues to pound in and it all revolves around this central idea that, you know, life isn't short. It's our decisions and approach that make it short. And, you know, just how much of our time, we, you know, give away freely to, you know, the latest show on Netflix or, oh, I need to go on TikTok or I need to go on Instagram and, you know, be connected with everybody. And I've always had a lot of dissonance around that idea. Like I've never loved, you know, um, like I use Twitter, I use Instagram, um, I use them to, you know, share what I'm doing. And I think that's the approach now is for me, those are platforms, not so much for, like just getting inundated with what what's going on in the world and getting inundated with everyone else's thoughts. But it's my way of at least just sharing my, my thoughts, the things that I'm working on, the things I'm discovering and learning in real time. And so for me, it's almost a way to get to, to it's a helpful exercise in like codifying things that stand out to me and trying to share those with people in a way that it can be helpful. And I find that really positive, but um, I have, I have always, I felt like it's been enormously beneficial for me to de-emphasize uh, news, de-emphasize being on social, de-emphasize being reading too many newsletters, and um, and in order to really make space and allow you know just some room for my own thoughts to bubble to the surface. And I think for so many of us, we're just being bombarded constantly with everyone else's ideas and takes and frustrations and observations. That if you were to just sit quietly, you know, for a little bit, I don't even know it would probably take you quite a while to have your own original thought you know, bubble to the surface. And so, um, what you know, uh, what opting out of that for me has been is just being really intentional about what I take in, um, you know, and again. I'm better at this sometimes. I'm worse at this sometimes, but I try on the whole to be really diligent about that. I try to, you know, and so some practices I do there is I just went through and kind of cold the newsletters that I read. Um, I just went through and kind of streamlined all my email inboxes where now any newsletter that comes in doesn't pile up and lead to the sense of overwhelm and, oh my God, I got 20 emails today, but it just, I, I set up a bunch of Google filters. That stuff automatically gets forward to Instapaper. So it's ready for me to read whenever I'm ready. Um, you know, and then I try as much as possible to read, 
I don't know, 80, 90% long form content and also make more time just to sit down and reflect and write. And I think for me, that's been the most helpful in terms of connecting with my own ideas and my own sense of where I should head and, and why. And I, I think it's just really important because again, we, we have, we're here for a very short period of time, whether we realize it or not. You know, it, there's we see instances of that bubble up all around us. I think Chadwick Boseman, I think, is a great example of that recently, who passed away with colon cancer, you know, at a really young age. Like, we don't know how long we're going to be here. And so I think if you aspire to treat life as an adventure, to set an exciting and big, scary, audacious goal and destination for yourself of what you want to achieve and who you want to become, then you really need to make time and space for yourself. And I think, you know, that's been a big part of my evolution over time is just becoming more connected with myself and what I believe and what I value. And for me, that's been immensely rewarding because number one, I, I know that all that's what I want. It's not someone else's vision or someone else's idea. And I've just kind of am borrowing that for a period of time and holding onto it on my own. But the, and a lot of this for me, just the last thing I would say is come from investing and, you know, one principle in investing that I really like, and there's a bunch of like maxims, ideas from investing that I use all the time in, in business and, and in life. Um, but one is just this idea that you can't outsource or delegate due diligence. And so what does that mean? That sounds super boring on the surface. Sorry, everybody. Um, but, um, what that means is like, ultimately, if you're going to make an investment, so like with all my investments, it's ultimately my capital. And so at the end of the day, I'm either going to be super excited about the companies that I've invested in. And I know that each one of them, I made that decision. I believed in them and get the, you know, rewards or learnings that come from that down the road, or I'm not, and I'm just going to borrow somebody else's. And then it very much is, you know, more, more to a degree luck. And so it's just this notion that I think, um, everyone, I do fundamentally believe that everyone, um, will be happier. Everyone will feel more fulfilled if they are connected with themselves and the things that they're doing are their own ideas and their own beliefs put into action as opposed to somebody else's. And so for me, what kind of disconnecting from that attention economy has been is just being super, you know, using social almost never or super sparingly biasing more for long form content and making a lot more time for myself to just sit down with a blank piece of paper, write out things that are bubbling to the surface, write out things that are surprising me or frustrating me or challenging me or exciting me in the moment and just spending more time almost in like conversation with myself. That makes sense. I love that thing. The trying to make sure that what you read is 80 to 90% long form content. Cause that just feels like such a, such a good rule of thumb. Like once that's the way you operate, then you're going to read more books and, and scroll less Instagram. Right. Yeah. And it's still, you know, there's other things there. Like I think part of it too is like, don't, get out of the rat race of I read X many books this year. And, you know, something I've talked about with a few friends is just this belief that, um, you know, books are almost like people in your life or it's like a voice or a coach that you can pull off the shelf and spend a little bit of time with at any point in time. Yeah. And so rather than yeah. thinking about all the books that you haven't read, all the books you could read, maybe just reflect on like, what are the five, six books that I would be a better person if I went and reread this every three or four months. Mm. And some of that is too, like knowing yourself and knowing what you need to counterbalance yourself, which I think all of us do. We all have, you know, we all have a highlight side and a shadow side. We all have, you know, things that I think we need to kind of try to push on um, in order to nudge ourselves in the right direction. Um, and so, yeah, just biasing more too for just just more time spent with fewer ideas and connecting more with yourself. Um, super inspiring. Um, and yeah, absolutely nailing the whole theme of this podcast. So uh, 
Thanks, Daniel. Really just loved chatting to you. Um, just before you go, do you want to just tell us how people can connect with you, how they can find out more about Flow and anything else you want to share at the end? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on, Graham. I was couldn't have been more excited to be on today. So thanks for, <laughs> thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so anyone can follow me and learn more about me and uh, you know read the things that I write as well as see new podcast episodes that I release on danielscrivener.com. Um, I've got a podcast that I launched in August that's called Outliers. And the whole idea there is I'm trying to interview the top 1% of people across all industries. We've had authors, we've had, um, we have space investors, we've had uh, NPR's vocal coach on the show. So it's really trying to be very broad based and just what are all the voices that you haven't heard and, and, um, what are all the things we can learn by decoding what this top 1% of people have, have figured out and also having them share and, uh, learning from what they've learned along the way. It's kind of like what I'm sharing with you today. Um, so you can subscribe to that. Uh, it's called outliers with Daniel Scrivener on any podcast platform, and you can learn more at danielscrivener.com. And then for flow, um, you can learn more at getflow.com um, and our new version of our products called FlowX. Um, you can learn more about that at getflow.com slash flow dash X. Great. Um, so yeah, check out those. We'll put links to all of those books and everything else uh, that we mentioned in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. And what else does your day have in store there in Colorado? I'm finishing mine, but you're um, in the middle of yours, right? Yeah, I'm just getting started. So I'm excited after this to to get up and go walk around for a little bit outside and get some sunlight. And then I always start the day by just sitting down and trying to to map out just the few big rocks that I want to get done that day. And then what all, and then the way I typically work is, um, you know, I work one task at a time. I'm only allowed to focus on one thing at a time. Every task I do, I try to assign it what I call a time box. So, um, I'm going to try to get this done in 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And I use a little timer for that. So uh, I'll get into that shortly. Cool. Well, I hope you have a great day. Um, yeah, super inspiring and, uh, great to have you on the podcast. So thanks, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks again to Daniel for being just such a great guest, very candid, very wise, just everything I love about Beyond Busy. So just a real pleasure to to get to know Daniel a little bit there. And I'm also going to do his podcast, his Outliers podcast. We've lined that one up. I'll keep you posted when that goes out. Um, and thank you also to Bree Krieger, Jonathan Barshop from Lemon Pie for helping me to set that one up. Um, so thanks, guys, for your help with that. And thanks, as always, to Mark Stedman and Podient, my producer and platform for the show. Um, this episode was sponsored by Think Productive. If you are interested in productivity workshops, if you want to help, uh, if you want help with making space for what matters, then go to thinkproductive.com. We can help you and your team. Um, one thing I want to just mention at the end is my rev up for the week email. I mentioned it at the beginning um, that I've been putting out a weekly email. The idea is it goes out on a Sunday evening and it's some positive ideas in your inbox every Sunday. So if you want to be part of that, just go to grahamalcott.com. You'll find a little form on the page uh, to sign up for that. It's been a really interesting experiment, which I've started uh, really from the early part of um, this year. It's the first time I've ever done a weekly mail out. And it's also the first time I've ever really had a weekly writing deadline. I feel like it's upping my game in terms of writing. Um, I think writing is like a muscle and just really having the the need and the obligation to put out something decent every single Sunday is 
really helping me to up my game. I think it's, you know, it's a craft, it's a muscle. It's something that the more you do it, the better it gets. And um, little, uh, little sneak preview thing I can let you in on um, right now, which is that I have signed a new deal to uh, write a new book. So I'm currently in the very early stages of research around that. But suffice to say, it is on a subject that's very close to my heart and it's all around leadership. It's going to be quite a diversion away from productivity and productivity ninja. So part of what I'm doing with my rev up for the week email is just uh, slowly introducing people to some of the new themes that are going to make up this new book. So if you want to be in on that and on the inside track and hear about it first, then just go to graymalcott.com and just get onto my rev up for the week email list. And I promise you there's some little book nuggets and goodies coming over the next few weeks just to uh, get you set for that. And while I'm talking about books, I should probably mention that there's a couple of books coming out from me early next year. So there'll be the new How to Have the Energy book, which is um, actually a revamped version of Work Fuel, which we did last year. Work Fuel, we realised, was a really crap title and bookshops didn't know where to put it. So um, we're re-releasing that as a much more straight nutrition and lifestyle book so it's called how to have the energy all about how to eat to have the better energy for work basically Um, and then in april next year i'm releasing with hayley watts one of our team at think productive a book called how to fix meetings so all about uh, the various different things that you can do personally and culturally to make meetings productive to reduce the time that you spend in meetings and of course to make the ones that you do have uh, more productive and effective so if you want to get in on those books i think they're both on amazon already for pre-order so how to have the energy comes out in january and then how to fix meetings comes out in april i will of course let you know a bit more about those near the time here on beyond busy in fact i'm planning to have both colette and Haley, my co-authors on those two books on this podcast so we'll have them on at some point in the, the run-up to those books being released so that is it for this week's episode um i really hope you loved it i really loved getting to know Daniel and um, yeah, looking forward to continuing the conversation with Daniel on his podcast uh, as well. And we're back uh, next week. Next week, I've got Olivia Saboni, who is um, the author of a fantastic book. Um, It's called uh, You're About to Make a Terrible Mistake. And uh, it's all about biases. It's, It's phenomenal. It's one of the best business books I've read in a long time, actually. So we've got him on the podcast next week. Very excited about that one. I'll see you then. Take care, stay warm, stay safe. Bye for now.